Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. This episode, we're continuing with Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World, and we start with Chapter 5. Monday, August 25th, the spray sailed from Gibraltar, well repaid for whatever deviation she had made from a direct course to reach the place. A tug belonging to Her Majesty towed the sloop into the steady breeze clear of the mount, where her sails caught a volant wind, which carried her once more to the Atlantic, where it rose rapidly to a furious gale. My plan was, in going down this coast, to haul off shore, well clear of the land, which hereabouts is the home of pirates, but I had hardly accomplished this when I perceived a felucca making out of the nearest port and finally following in the wake of the spray. Now my course to Gibraltar had been taken with a view to proceed to the Mediterranean Sea through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea and east about, instead of a western route which I finally adopted. By officers of vast experience in navigating these seas, I was influenced to make the change. Longshore pirates on both coasts being numerous, I could not afford to make light of the advice. But here I was, after all, evidently in the midst of pirates and thieves. I changed my course, the felucca did the same, both vessels sailing very fast, but the distance growing less and less between us. The spray was doing nobly, she was even more than at her best, but in spite of all I could do, she would broach now and then. She was carrying too much sail for safety, I must reef or be dismasted, and lose all, pirate or no pirate, I must reef, even if I had to grapple with him for my life. I was not long in reefing the mainsail and sweating it up, probably not more than 15 minutes, but the felucca had in the meantime so short in the distance between us that I now saw the tuft of hair on the heads of the crew by which, it is said, Mohammed will pull the villains up into heaven, and they were coming on like the wind. From what I could clearly make out now, I felt them to be the sons of generations of pirates, and I saw by their movements that they were now preparing to strike a blow. The exultation on their faces, however, was changed in an instant to a look of fear and rage. Their craft, with too much sail on, broached on the crest of a great wave. This one great sea changed the aspect of affairs suddenly as the flash of a gun. Three minutes later, the same wave overtook the spray and shook her in every timber. At the same moment, the sheet struck parted and away went the main boom, broken short at the rigging. Impulsively, I sprang to the jib halyards and downhaul and instantly down the jib. The headsail being off and the helm put hard down, the sloop came in the wind with a bound. While shivering there, but a moment though it was, I got the mainsail down and secured inboard, broken boom and all. How I got the boom in before the sail was torn I hardly know, but not a stitch of it was broken. The mainsail being secured, I hoisted away the jib and without looking round, stepped quickly to the cabin and snatched down my loaded rifle and cartridges at hand, for I had made mental calculations that the pirate would by this time have recovered his course and be close aboard, and that when I saw him, it would be better for me to be looking at him along the barrel of a gun. The piece was at my shoulder when I peered into the mist, but there was no pirate within a mile. The wave and squall that carried away my boom dismasted the felucca outright. I perceived his thieving crew, some dozen or more of them, struggling to recover their rigging from the sea, Allah blackened their faces. I sailed comfortably on under the jib and forestaysail, which I now set. I fished the boom and furled the sail snug for the night, then hauled the sloop's head two points offshore to allow for the set of current and heavy rollers towards the land. 
This gave me the win three points on the starboard quarter and a steady pull in the headsails. By the time I had things in this order, it was dark and a flying fish had already fallen on deck. I took him below for my supper, but found myself too tired to cook or even to eat a thing already prepared. I do not remember to have been more tired before or since in all my life than I was at the finish of that day. Too fatigued to sleep, I rolled about with the motion of the vessel till near midnight when I made shift to dress my fish and prepare a dish of tea. I fully realized now, if I had not before, that the voyage ahead would call for exertions ardent and lasting. On August 27th, nothing could be seen of the moor or his country either, except two peaks away in the east through the clear atmosphere of morning. Soon after the sun rose, even these were obscured by haze, much to my satisfaction. The wind, for a few days following my escape from the pirates, blew a steady but moderate gale, and the sea, though agitated into long rollers, was not uncomfortably rough or dangerous, and while sitting in my cabin I could hardly realise that any sea was running at all, so easy was the long, swinging motion of the sloop over the waves. All distracting uneasiness and excitement being now over, I was once again alone with myself in the realisation that I was on the mighty sea and in the hands of the elements, but I was happy and was becoming more and more interested in the voyage. Columbus in the Santa Maria, sailing these seas more than 400 years before, was not so happy as I, nor so sure of success in what he had undertaken. His first troubles at sea had already begun. His crew had managed by foul play or otherwise to break the ship's rudder while running before probably just such a gale as the spray had passed through, and there was dissension on the Santa Maria, something that was unknown on the spray. After three days of squalls and shifting winds, I threw myself down to rest and sleep, while with helm lashed the sloop sailed easily on her course. September 1st, in the early morning, land clouds rising ahead told of the Canary Islands not far away. A change in the weather came next day. Storm clouds stretched their arms across the sky. From the east, all appearances might come a fierce harmattan, or from the south might come the fierce hurricane. Every point of the compass threatened a wild storm. My tension was turned to reefing sails and no time was to be lost over it either for the sea in a moment was confusion itself and I was glad to head the sloop three points or more away from her true course that she might ride safely over the waves. I was now scudding her for the channel between Africa and the island of Fuerteventura, the easternmost of the Canary Islands, for which I was on the lookout. At 2pm, the weather becoming suddenly fine, the island stood in view, already a beam to starboard and not more than seven miles off. Fuerteventura is 2,700 feet high and in fine weather is visible many leagues away. The wind freshened in the night and the spray had a fine run through the channel. By daylight, September 3rd, she was 25 miles clear of all the islands when a calm ensued which was the precursor of another gale of wind that soon came on, bringing with it dust from the African shore. It howled dismally while it lasted, and though it was not the season of the Harmattan, the sea in the course of an hour was discoloured with a reddish-brown dust. The air remained thick with flying dust all the afternoon, but the wind, veering northwest at night, swept it back to the land and afforded the spray once more a clear sky. Her masts now bent under strong, steady pressure, and her bellying sails swept the sea as she rolled scuppers under, curtsying to the waves. These rolling waves thrilled me as they tossed my ship, passing quickly under her keel. This was grand sailing. September 4th. The wind, still fresh, blew from the north-northeast, and the sea surged along with the sloop. 
About noon, a steamship, a bullock droger from the river plate, hove in sight, steering northeast and making bad weather of it. I signalled her, but got no answer. She was plunging into the head sea and rolling in a most astonishing manner, and from the way she yawed, she might have said that a wild steer was at the helm. On the morning of September 6th, I found three flying fish on deck and a fourth one down the fore scuttle, as close as possible to the frying pan. It was the best haul yet, and afforded me a sumptuous breakfast and dinner. The spray had now settled down to the trade winds and to the business of her voyage. Later in the day, another droger hove in sight, rolling as badly as her predecessor. I threw out no flag to this one, but got the worst of it for passing under her lee. She was indeed a stale one, and the poor cattle, how they bellowed. The time was when ships passing one another at sea backed their topsails and had a gam, and on parting fired guns, but those good old days have gone. People have hardly time nowadays to speak, even on the broad ocean, where news is news, and as for a salute of guns, they cannot afford the powder. There were no poetry-enshrined freighters on the sea now. It is a prosy life when we have no time to bid one another good morning. My ship, running now in the full swing of the trades, left me days to myself for rest and recuperation. I employed the time in reading and writing, or in whatever I found to do about the rigging and the sails to keep them all in order. The cooking was always done quickly, and was a small matter, as the bill of fare consisted mostly of flying fish, hot biscuits and butter, potatoes, coffee and cream, dishes readily prepared. On September 10th, the spray passed the island of San Antonio, the northwesternmost of the Cape Verdes, close aboard. The landfall was wonderfully true, considering that no observations for longitude had been made. The wind, northeast as the sloop drew by the island, was very squally, but I reefed her sails snug and steered broad from the highland of blustering San Antonio. Then, leaving the Cape Verde Islands out of sight astern, I found myself once more sailing a lonely sea, and in a solitude supreme all around. When I slept, I dreamed that I was alone. This feeling never left me, but, sleeping or waking, I seemed always to know the position of the sloop, and I saw my vessel moving across the chart, which became a picture before me. One night, while I sat in the cabin under this spell, the profound stillness of all about was broken by human voices alongside. I sprang instantly to the deck, startled beyond my power to tell. Passing close under lee like an apparition was a white bark under full sail. The sailors on board of her were hauling on ropes to brace the yards, which just cleared the sloop's mast as she swept by. No one hailed from the white-winged flyer, but I heard someone on board say he saw lights on the sloop and that he made her out to be a fisherman. I sat long on the starlit deck that night, thinking of ships and watching the constellations on their voyage. On the following day, September 13th, a large four-masted ship passed some distance to windward, heading north. The sloop was now rapidly drawing toward the region of doldrums, and the force of the trade winds was lessening. I could see by the ripples that a countercurrent had set in. This I estimated to be about 16 miles a day. In the heart of the counterstream, the rate was more than that setting eastward. September 14th. A lofty three-masted ship heading north was seen from the masthead. Neither this ship nor the one seen yesterday was within signal distance, yet it was good even to see them. On the following day, heavy rain clouds rose in the south, obscuring the sun. This was ominous of doldrums. 
On the 16th, the spray entered this gloomy region to battle with squalls and to be harassed by fitful calms. For this is the state of the elements between the northeast and the southeast trades, where each wind, struggling in turn for mastery, expends its force whirling about in all directions. Making this still more trying to one's nerve and patience, the sea was tossed into confused cross lumps and fretted by eddying currents, as if something more were needed to complete a sailor's discomfort in this state. The rain poured down in torrents day and night. The spray struggled and tossed for 10 days, making only 300 miles on her course in all that time. I didn't say anything. On September 23rd, the fine scooter Nantasket of Boston from Bear River for the River Plate, lumber laden and just through the doldrums, came up with the spray and her captain, passing a few words, she sailed on. Being much fouled on the bottom by shellfish, she drew along with her fishes which had been following the spray, which was less provided with that sort of food. Fishes will always follow a foul ship. A barnacle-grown log adrift has the same attraction for deep-sea fishes. One of this little school of deserters was a dolphin that had followed the spray about a thousand miles and had been content to eat scraps of food thrown overboard from my table, for, having been wounded, it could not dart through the sea to prey on other fishes. I had become accustomed to seeing the dolphin, which I knew by its scars, and missed it whenever it took occasional excursions away from the sloop. One day, after it had been off some hours, it returned in company with three yellowtails, a sort of cousin to the dolphin. This little school kept together, except when in danger and when foraging about the sea. Their lives were often threatened by hungry sharks that came round the vessel, and more than once they had narrow escapes. Their mode of escape interested me greatly, and I passed hours watching them. They would dart away, each in a different direction, so that the wolf of the sea, the shark, pursuing one, would be led away from the others. Then after a while they would all return and rendezvous under one side or the other of the sloop. Twice their pursuers were diverted by a tin pan which I towed astern of the sloop, and which was mistaken for a bright fish, and while turning, in their peculiar way that sharks have when about to devour their prey, I shot them through the head. Their precarious life seemed to concern the yellowtails very little, if at all. All living beings, without doubt, are afraid of death. Nevertheless, some of the species I saw huddled together as though they knew they were created for the larger fishes and wished to give the least possible trouble to their captors. I have seen, on the other hand, whales swimming in a circle around a school of herrings and with mighty exertion bunching them together in a whirlpool set in motion by their flukes. And when the small fry were all whirled nicely together, one or other of the leviathans lunging through the centre with open jaws, taking a boatload or so at a single mouthful. Off the Cape of Good Hope, I saw schools of sardines or other small fish being treated in this way by great numbers of cavalli fish. There was not the slightest chance of escaping for the sardines, while the cavalli circled round and round, feeding from the edge of the mass. It was interesting to note how rapidly the small fry disappeared, and though it was repeated before my eyes over and over, I could hardly perceive the capture of a single sardine, so dexterously was it done. Along the equatorial limit of the southeast trade winds, the air was heavily charged with electricity, and there was much thunder and lightning. It was hereabout I remembered that, a few years before, the American ship Alert was destroyed by lightning. Her people, by wonderful good fortune, were rescued on the same day and brought to Pernambuco, where I met them there. On September 25th, in the latitude of 5 degrees north, longitude 26 degrees 30 minutes west, I spoke the ship North Star of London. The great ship was out 48 days from Norfolk, Virginia, and was bound for Rio, where we met again about two months later. 
The spray was now 30 days from Gibraltar. The spray's next companion of the voyage was a swordfish that swam alongside, showing its tall fin out of the water, till I made a stir for my harpoon, when it hauled its black flag down and disappeared. September 30th, at half past 11 in the morning, the spray crossed the equator in longitude 29 degrees 30 west. At noon, she was two miles south of the line. The southeast trade winds met, rather light, in about four degrees north, gave her sails now a stiff, full sending her handsomely over the sea toward the coast of Brazil, where on October 5th, just north of Olinda Point, without further incident, she made the land, casting anchor in Pernambuco Harbour about noon, 40 days from Gibraltar, and all well on board. Did I tire of the voyage in all that time? Not a bit of it. I was never in better trim in all my life and was eager for the more perilous experience of rounding the horn. It was not at all strange in a life common to sailors that, having already crossed the Atlantic twice and being now halfway from Boston to the Horn, I should find myself still among friends. My determination to sail westward from Gibraltar not only enabled me to escape the pirates of the Red Sea, but in bringing me to Pernambuco, landed me on familiar shores. I had made many voyages to this and other ports in Brazil. In 1893, I was employed as master to take the famous Ericsson ship destroyer from New York to Brazil to go against the rebel Mello and his party. The destroyer, by the way, carried a submarine cannon of enormous length. In the same expedition went the Nicthoroy, the ship purchased by the United States government during the Spanish War and renamed the Buffalo. The destroyer was in many ways the better ship of the two, but the Brazilians in their curious war sank her themselves at Bahia. With her sank my hope of recovering wages due to me. Still, I could but try to recover, for to me it meant a great deal. But now, within two years, the whirligig of time had brought the Mellow Party into power, and although it was the legal government which had employed me, the so-called rebels felt under less obligation to me than I could have wished. During these visits to Brazil, I had made the acquaintance of Dr. Pereira, owner and editor of El Comercio Journal, and soon after the spray was safely moored in Upper Topsail Reach, the doctor, who was a very enthusiastic yachtsman, came to pay me a visit and to carry me up the waterway of the lagoon to his country residence. The approach to his mansion by the waterside was guarded by his armada, a fleet of boats including a Chinese sampan, a Norwegian pram and a capan dory, the last of which he obtained from the destroyer. The doctor dined me often on good Brazilian fare that I might, as he said, salegordo for the voyage, but he found that even on the best, I fattened slowly. Fruits and vegetables and all other provisions necessary for the voyage having been taken in, on the 23rd of October, I unmoored and made ready for sea. Here I encountered one of the unforgiving mellow faction in the person of the collector of customs, who charged the spray tonnage dues when she cleared, notwithstanding that she sailed with a yacht license and should have been exempt from port charges. Our consul reminded the collector of this and of the fact, without much diplomacy, I thought, that it was I who brought the destroyer to Brazil. Oh yes, said the bland collector. We remember it very well, for it was now, in a small way, his turn. Mr. Lundgren, a merchant to help me out of the trifling difficulty, offered to freight the spray with a cargo of gunpowder for Bahia, which would have put me in funds, and when the insurance companies refused to take the risk on cargo shipped on a vessel manned by a crew of only one, he offered to ship it without insurance, taking all the risk himself. This was perhaps 
paying me a greater compliment than I deserved. The reason why I did not accept the business was that in so doing, I found that I should vitiate my yacht license and run into more expense for harbour dues around the world than the freight would amount to. Instead of all this, another old merchant friend came to my assistance, advancing the cash direct. While at Pernambuco, I shortened the boom, which had been broken when off the coast of Morocco, by removing the broken piece, which took about four feet off the inboard end. I also refitted the jaws. On October 24, 1895, a fine day even as days go in Brazil, the spray sailed, having had abundant good cheer. Making about 100 miles a day along the coast, I arrived at Rio de Janeiro, November 5th, without any event worth mentioning and about noon cast anchor near Villa Gagnon to await the official port visit. On the following day, I bestirred myself to meet the highest lord of the admiralty and the ministers to inquire concerning the matter of wages due to me from the beloved destroyer. The high official I met said, Captain, so far as we are concerned, you may have the ship, and if you care to accept her, we will send an officer to show you where she is. I knew well enough where she was at that moment. The top of her smokestack being awash in Bahia, it was more than likely that she rested on the bottom there. I thanked the kind officer, but declined his offer. The spray, with a number of old shipmasters on board, sailed about the harbour of Rio the day before she put to sea. As I had decided to give the spray a yawl rig for the tempestuous waters of Patagonia, I here placed on the stern a semicircular brace to support a jiggermast. These old captains inspected the spray's rigging, and each one contributed something to her outfit. Captain Jones, who had acted as my interpreter at Rio, gave her an anchor, and one of the steamers gave her a cable to match it. She never dragged Jones's anchor once on the voyage, and the cable not only stood the strain on a lee shore, but when towed off Cape Horn, helped break combing seas astern that threatened to board her. Chapter 6 On November 28th, the spray sailed from Rio de Janeiro and first of all ran into a gale of wind which tore up things generally along the coast, doing considerable damage to shipping. It was well for her, perhaps, that she was clear of the land. Coasting along on this part of the voyage, I observed that while some of the small vessels I fell in with were able to outsail the spray by day, they fell astern of her by night. To the spray, day and night were the same. To the others, clearly, there was a difference. On one of the very fine days experienced after leaving Rio, the steamship South Wales spoke the spray and unsolicited gave the longitude of a chronometer as 48 degrees west. As near as I can make it, the captain said. The spray with her tin clock had exactly the same reckoning. I was feeling at ease in my primitive method of navigation, but it startled me not a little to find my position by account verified by the ship's chronometer. On December 5th, a barkentine hove in sight, and for several days the two vessels sailed along the coast together. Right here, a current was experienced setting north, making it necessary to hug the shore, with which the spray became rather familiar. Here I confess a weakness. I hugged the shore entirely too close. In a word, at daybreak, on the morning of December the 11th, the spray ran hard and fast on the beach. This was annoying, but I soon found that the sloop was in no great danger. The false appearance of the sand hills under a bright moon had deceived me and I lamented now that I had trusted to appearances at all. The sea, though moderately smooth, still carried a swell which broke with some force on the shore. I managed to launch my small dory from the deck and ran out a kedge anchor and a warp, but it was too late to kedge the sloop off for the tide was falling and she had already sewed a foot. Then I went about laying out the larger anchor, which was no easy matter, 
for my only lifeboat, the frail dory, when the anchor and cable were in it, was swamped at once in the surf, the load being too great for her. Then I cut the cable and made two loads of it instead of one. The anchor, with forty fathoms bent and already buoyed, I now took and succeeded in getting through the surf. But my dory was leaking fast, and by the time I had rowed far enough to drop the anchor, she was full to the gunwale and sinking. There was not a moment to spare, and I saw clearly that if I failed now, all might be lost. I sprang from the oars to my feet, and lifting the anchor above my head, threw it clear just as she was turning over. I grasped her gunwale and held on as she turned bottom up, for I suddenly remembered that I could not swim. Then I tried to right her, but with too much eagerness, for she rolled clean over and left me as before, clinging to her gunwale while my body was still in the water. Giving a moment to cool reflection, I found that although the wind was blowing moderately toward the land, the current was carrying me to sea, and that something would have to be done. Three times I had been underwater in trying to right the dory, and I was just saying, now I lay me, when I was seized by a determination to try yet once more, so that no one of the prophets of evil I had left behind me could say, I told you so. Whatever the danger may have been, much or little, I can truly say that the moment was the most serene of my life. After writing the dory for the fourth time, I finally succeeded by the utmost care in keeping her upright while I hauled myself into her, and with one of the oars, which I had recovered, paddled to the shore, somewhat the worse for wear, and pretty full of salt water. The position of my vessel, now high and dry, gave me anxiety. To get her afloat again was all I thought of or cared for. I had little difficulty in carrying the second part of my cable out and securing it to the first, which I had taken the precaution to buoy before I put it into the boat. To bring the end back to the sloop was a smaller matter still, and I believe I chuckled above my sorrows when I found that in all the haphazard, my judgment or my good genius had faithfully stood by me. The cable reached from the anchor in deep water to the sloop's windlass by just enough to secure a turn and no more. The anchor had been dropped at the right distance from the vessel. To heave all taut now and wait for the coming tide was all I could do. I had already done enough work to tire a stouter man and was only too glad to throw myself on the sand above the tide and rest, for the sun was already up and pouring a generous warmth over the land. While my state could have been worse, I was on the wild coast of a foreign country and not entirely secure in my property, as I soon found out. I had not been long on the shore when I heard the patter, patter of a horse's feet approaching along the hard beach, which ceased as it came abreast of the sand ridge where I lay sheltered from the wind. Looking up cautiously, I saw, mounted on a nag, probably the most astonished boy on the whole coast. He had found a sloop. It must be mine, he thought, for am not I the first to see it on the beach? Sure enough, there it was, all high and dry and painted white. He trotted his horse about it and found no owner, hitched to the nag to the sloop's bobstay and hauled as though he would take her home. But of course she was too heavy for one horse to move. With my skiff, however, it was different. This he hauled some distance and concealed behind a dune in a bunch of tall grass. He had made up his mind, I dare say, to bring more horses and drag this bigger prize away, anyhow, and was starting off for the settlement a mile or so away for the reinforcement when I discovered myself to him, at which he seemed displeased and disappointed. Buenos dias, muchacho, I said. He grunted a reply and eyed me keenly from head to foot. Then, bursting into a volley of questions, more than six Yankees could ask, he wanted to know first where my ship was from and how many days she had been coming. Then he asked what I was doing here ashore so early in the morning. Your questions are easily answered, I replied. 
My ship is from the moon. It has taken her a month to come, and she is here for a cargo of boys. But the intimation of this enterprise, had I not been on the alert, might have cost me dearly. For while I spoke, this child of the campo coiled his lariat ready to throw, and instead of being himself carried to the moon, he was apparently thinking of towing me home by the neck, astern of his wild cayuse over the fields of Uruguay. The exact spot where I was stranded was at the Castillo Chicos, about seven miles south of the dividing line of Uruguay and Brazil, and of course the natives there speak Spanish. To reconcile my early visitor, I told him that I had on my ship biscuits and that I wished to trade them for butter and milk. On hearing this, a broad grin lighted up his face and showed that he was greatly interested, and that, even in Uruguay, a ship's biscuit will cheer the heart of a boy and make him your bosom friend. The lad almost flew home and returned quickly with butter, milk and eggs. I was, after all, in a land of plenty. With the boy came others, old and young, from neighbouring ranches, among them a German settler who was of great assistance to me in many ways. A coast guard from Fort Teresa a few miles away also came to protect your property from the natives of the plains, he said. I took occasion to tell him, however, that if he would look after the people of his own village, I would take care of those from the plains, pointing, as I spoke, to the nondescript merchant who had already stolen my revolver and several small articles from my cabin, which, by a bold front, I had recovered. The chap was not a native Uruguayan. Here, as in many other places that I visited, the natives themselves were not the ones discreditable to the country. Early in the day, a dispatch came from the port captain of Montevideo, commanding the coast guards to render the spray every assistance. This, however, was not necessary, for a guard was already on the alert and making all the ado that could become the wreck of a steamer with a thousand emigrants aboard. The same messenger brought word from the port captain that he would dispatch a steam tug to tow the spray to Montevideo. The officer was as good as his word. A powerful tug arrived on the following day, but, to make a long story short, with the help of the German and one soldier and one Italian called Angel of Milan, I had already floated the sloop and was sailing for port with the boom off before a fair wind. The adventure cost the spray no small amount of pounding on the hard sand as she lost her shoe and part of her false keel and received other damage which, however, was readily mended afterward in dock. On the following day, I anchored at Maldonado. The British consul, his daughter, and another young lady came on board, bringing with them a basket of fresh eggs, strawberries, bottles of milk, and a great loaf of sweet bread. This was a good landfall, and better cheer than I had found at Maldonado once upon a time when I entered the port with a stricken crew in my bark, the Aquidneck. In the waters of Maldonado Bay, a variety of fishes abounded, and fur seals in their season hauled out on the island abreast the bay to breed. Currents on this coast are greatly affected by the prevailing winds, and a tidal wave higher than the ordinary procured by the moon is sent up the whole shore of Uruguay before a southwest gale or lowered by a northeaster, as may happen. One of these waves, having just receded before the northeast wind which brought the spray in, left the tide now at low ebb, with oyster rocks laid bare for some distance along the shore. Other shellfish of good flavour were also plentiful, though small in size. I gathered a mess of oysters and mussels here, while a native with hook and line and with mussels for bait fished from a point of detached rocks for bream, landing several good-sized ones. The fisherman's nephew, a lad about seven years old, deserves mention as the tallest blasphemer for a short boy that I met on the voyage. He called his old uncle all the vile names under the sun for not helping him cross the gully. 
While he swore roundly in all the moods and tenses of the Spanish language, his uncle fished on, now and then congratulating his hopeful nephew on his accomplishment. At the end of his rich vocabulary, the urchin sauntered off into the fields and shortly returned with a bunch of flowers, and with all smiles handed them to me with the innocence of an angel. I remembered having seen the same flower on the banks of the river farther up, some years before, and I asked the young pirate why he had brought them to me. Said he, I don't know. I only wish to do so. Whatever the influence was that put so amiable a wish in this wild pamper boy, it must be far-reaching, thought I, and potent, seize over. Shortly after, the spray sailed for Montevideo, where she arrived on the following day and was greeted by steam whistles till I felt embarrassed and wished that I had arrived unobserved. The voyage so far alone may have seemed to the Uruguayans a feat worthy of some recognition, but there was so much of it yet ahead and of such an arduous nature that any demonstration at this point seemed somehow like boasting prematurely. The spray had barely come to anchor at Montevideo when the agents of the Royal Mail Steam Company at Messrs Humphrey & Co. sent word that they would dock and repair her free of expense and give me £20 sterling, which they did to the letter, and more besides. The caulkers at Montevideo paid very careful attention to the work of making the sloop tight. Carpenters mended the keel and also the lifeboat, the dory, painting it till I hardly knew it from a butterfly. Christmas of 1895 found the spray refitted even to a wonderful makeshift stove which was contrived from a large iron drum of some sort punched full of holes to give it a draft. The pipe reached straight up through the top of the forecastle. Now this was not a stove by mere courtesy. It was always hungry, even for green wood, and in cold, wet days off the coast of Tierra del Fuego, it stood me in good stead. Its one door swung on copper hinges, which one of the yard apprentices with laudable pride polished till the whole thing blushed like the brass binnacle of a P&O steamer. The spray was now ready for sea. Instead of proceeding at once on her voyage, however, she made an excursion up the river, sailing December 29th. An old friend of mine, Captain Howard of Cape Cod and of River Plate fame, took the trip in her to Buenos Aires, where she arrived early on the following day, with a gale of wind and a current so much in her favour that she outdid herself. I was glad to have a sailor of Howard's experience on board to witness her performance of sailing with no living being at the helm. Howard sat near the binnacle and watched the compass while the sloop held her course so steadily that one would have declared that the card was nailed fast. Not a quarter of a point did she deviate from her course. My old friend had owned and sailed a pilot sloop on the river for many years, but this feat took the wind out of his sails at last, and he cried, I'll be stranded on Chico Bank if I ever saw the like of it. Perhaps he had never given his sloop a chance to show what she could do. The point I make for the spray here, above all other points, is that she sailed in shoal water and in a strong current with other difficult and unusual conditions. Captain Howard took all this into account. In all the years away from his native home, Howard had not forgotten the art of making fish chowders, and to prove this he brought along some fine rockfish and prepared a mess fit for kings. When the savoury chowder was done, Chocking the pot securely between boxes on the cabin floor so that it could not roll over, we helped ourselves and swapped yarns over it while the spray made her own way through the darkness on the river. Howard told me stories about the Fugian cannibals as she reeled along, and I told him about the pilot of the Pinta steering my vessel through the storm off the coast of the Azores, and that I looked for him at the helm in a gale such as this. I do not charge Howard with superstition. We are none of us superstitious. But when I spoke about his returning to Montevideo on the spray, he shook his head and took a steam packet instead. 
I had not been in Buenos Aires for a number of years. The place where I had once landed from packets in a cart was now built up with magnificent docks. Vast fortunes had been spent in remodelling the harbour. London bankers could tell you that. The port captain, after assigning the spray a safe berth with his compliments, sent me word to call on him for anything I might want while in port, and I felt quite sure that his friendship was sincere. The sloop was well cared for at Buenos Aires, her dockage and tonnage dues were all free, and the yachting fraternity of the city welcomed her with a good will. In town I found things not so greatly changed as about the dock, and I soon felt myself more at home. From Montevideo I had forwarded a letter from Sir Edward Hareby. From Montevideo I had forwarded a letter from Sir Edward Hareby to the owner of the Standard, Mr Mulhall, and in reply to it was shored of a warm welcome to the warmest heart I think outside of Ireland. Mr Mulhall, with a prancing team, came down to the docks as soon as the spray was berthed and would have me go to his house at once where a room was waiting. And it was New Year's Day, 1896. The course of the spray had been followed in the columns of the Standard. Mr Mulhall kindly drove me to see many improvements about the city and we went in search of some of the old landmarks. The man who sold lemonade on the plaza when first I visited this wonderful city, his stock in trade was a wash tub and a neighbouring hydrant, a moderate supply of brown sugar and about six lemons that floated on the sweetened water. The water from time to time was renewed from the friendly pump, but the lemon went on forever and all at two cents a glass. But we looked in vain for the man who once sold whiskey in coffins in Buenos Aires. The march of civilization had crushed him. Memory only clung to his name. Enterprising man that he was, I fain would have looked him up. I remember the tiers of whiskey barrels ranged on end on one side of the store, while on the other side, and divided by a thin partition, were the coffins in the same order, of all sizes and in great numbers. The unique arrangement seemed in order, for as a cask was emptied, a coffin might be filled. Besides cheap whiskey and many other liquors, he sold cider, which he manufactured from damaged Malaga raisins. Within the scope of his enterprise was also the sale of mineral waters, not entirely blameless of the germs of disease. This man surely catered to all the tastes, wants and conditions of his customers. Farther along in the city, however, survived the good man who wrote on the side of his store, where thoughtful men might read and learn, This wicked world will be destroyed by a comet. The owner of this store is therefore bound to sell out at any price and avoid the catastrophe. My friend, Mr. Mulhall, drove me round to view the fearful comet with streaming tail pictured large on the trembling merchant's walls. I had shipped the sloop's mast at Buenos Aires and shortened it by seven feet. I reduced the length of the bowsprit by about five feet, and even then I found it reaching far enough from home, and more than once, while on the end of it reefing the jib, I regretted that I had not shortened it another foot. That's the end of these chapters. If you'd like to hear more of the book, continue on to the next podcast. And if you'd like to hear my commentary as a solo sailor, keep listening. Well, welcome to the commentary for chapters five and six. I think the book at this point is just really starting to get going. And I have to admit that coming back and reading it in the way that I am and uh, doing these commentaries, I'm really kind of getting under the skin of this book a little bit and starting to learn a lot more about Slocum, a lot more about this time period that this all plays out in, and a lot more about the, the genius of Slocum. I'd always thought of him purely as a navigator and a sailor, but as I've started to research this, I've started to realize that 
um, he was also a genius at promoting himself. I'm not sure if that's purely him or if he had a sponsor or his wife or what exactly was the deal. I will get to the bottom of that as I go along. But what I have uh, learned is that all of this help that he gets, all of these people that know what he's up to, it's because he is what we would now call an influencer. He's in all the newspapers and the periodicals and journals, and everybody is aware of what Captain Slocum is, is doing out here on this boat. One of the things that uh, most surprised me, and, and I think I was heartened by, is that um, he, he was doing this for money. And, <laughs> and I say it heartens me because when you read a book like this, when you listen to a book like this, you start to think, oh, you know, it's all so romantic and it's all so, you know, he just, he's got his hat on and his leather shoes and his beard and his waistcoat and he's sailing around the world for the, for the love of it and the development of humankind. And then you realize actually beneath it, um, this is a business and Slocum may be the first person to sail uh, solo around the world, but he's also one of the first people ever to realize that he could uh, do these things, vicariously take his readership with him through his um, uh, syndicated uh, journals that he was putting out in newspapers and that he was managing to turn a wage. He was an artist and that he was writing and creating the the prose and the text that he uh, he, he he shares with us in the, in this book, Sailing Alone Around the World. But he was also someone with a hard skill background and that mix and that 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 businessman, the sailor, the, the creator who Who's writing these things, I think I find him to be a lot more three-dimensional than I ever realized. And as I've, as I've been, obviously I know now I've got to start trying to explain this stuff to, to you guys as we're going through the book. I've started to reach out and start to get more books about Slocum. And it's, it's been wonderful. I'm reading one at the moment called Joshua Slocum, The Captain Who Sailed Around the World. It's by Quentin Casey, and it's available through Nimbus Publishing, which is a Canadian publishing house. And I'd like to point out that reading the back of it, that uh, Quentin Casey is donating all the royalties from the sale of this book to the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia, which is absolutely awesome. But um, in it, in the beginning of chapter six, um, he's uh, saying that um, Slocum was unabashed about why he was doing what he's doing. And I quote, the object of the trip, well, it is mainly to make money, Slocum told a reporter from the Boston Daily Globe. I see money ahead if I can get through safely. He also planned to earn cash by filing regular reports to a syndicate of newspapers, end quote. So he was in no way trying to, um, trying to hide what he was doing it for, but because he chose this method, what we have from it is, A, he did do it, brilliant. Uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people at the time went with him and had their own um, limitations expanded by realizing, wow, this guy went off and sailed solo around the world. And from it came this fantastic book, which has then been an inspiration to generations of sailors since. So I, I see no sadness in the fact that he was doing it uh, as a business. I think I'm just starting to learn that he was way smarter than I ever realized. I just think of him like, you know, kind of, oh, this old guy and he's writing this book. And I think I previously said, oh, you know, I wonder why uh, his writing is so good. I wonder if someone else wrote it for him. I, I don't think so. I think he'd already had uh, a published book, uh, his uh, chronicle of returning from South America uh, back to North America in his canoe that he built, basically the Libertad. So I think he'd got a taste of how this might work and then had well, driven that home and got this success. So he sets off from Gibraltar 
onto what is really the beginning of his circumnavigation. I've twice left from Europe heading off around the world, and I have a feeling that I know kind of what his mindset was as he set off. Crossing the Atlantic from west to east is no small undertaking, or indeed east to west for anybody that's done it. To do it in a 30 you know, even let's say, let's round him out. He's got a bowsprit, a 40 foot boat. He's setting off in a 40 foot wooden boat that he's rebuilt himself. He's on his own. Um, he never ever claims to be the first person to sail across the Atlantic solo. So that may well have been done a number of times before, but um, it's certainly very unusual for the time. And, and he's no, you know, uh, spring chicken. I, I can actually quote again here from uh, Quentin Casey's book, uh, again at the beginning of chapter six. And he says, um, in mid-April 1895, Slocum was living aboard the Spray at a dock in East Boston, preparing his vessel for the ambitious voyage. The local papers, keen to report the details of the coming trip, sent reporters to interview the adventurer. Captain Joshua is a kinky salt, 51 years old, as spry as a kitten and as nimble as a monkey, a reporter wrote in the April 16th edition of the Boston Herald. End quote. So he he was 51, which, you know, this is 1895. Uh, life expectancy isn't what it is now. Um, but he's obviously very, very fit, from, no doubt, from all the things he's been doing, fishing and rebuilding the boat and everything else that he'd been doing in his life before. But he's 51 and sailing solo is very unusual for the times and it's a smaller vessel. And so setting off from Gibraltar with this challenge ahead of them is a massive deal. I think that's the kind of time when you realize like, oh yeah, like I'm meant to go around the world. <laughs> I can remember my own thoughts leaving and going and do these things. Um, and it, it seems a, a very large mountain to, to climb. Obviously he had already had hundreds of thousands of miles experience as a master of the ship, but this is qualitatively different from that experience. And I'm sure that um, we've heard before that he had some uh, not concerns, but some considerations and was thinking about it and everything else. I think crossing the Atlantic, as I said, was a test, um, but now he's setting off proper. This is the beginning of the circumnavigation. The thing also I was interested to learn in this one, obviously I'm kind of concentrating on the book a lot more now um, than I've done in previous readings. Um, he, he was not ever planning to go this way, basically. Um, Quentin Casey, a little bit further on in that chapter, explains that he had all sorts of different plans to go all sorts of different routes, including one in which he was going to have the ship, um, uh, ha well, have the spray uh, carried up, shipped up and over the Isthmus of Panama because the Panama Canal hadn't been built at that point. So initially, certainly, he was thinking of doing a circumnavigation of the world, but going through the Suez Canal and then having the boat brought up over the mountains in Panama. That is very, very different to do a mid-latitude circumnavigation than it is to go around the world via Cape Horn and in particular to go west around the Horn. We get a little inkling as to why that might be. Um, both by the fact that Slocum says, you know, he's got loads of good advice from the officers in Gibraltar um, about which way he should go. And then this initial story of being chased by the pirates in the Felucca. So just to kind of just to kind of add a little structure to all that, what I'm saying is that I think that he had all sorts of different plans. I think that the pirates definitely were the thing that he was worried about, both in the Mediterranean on the North African coast. Uh, after he passed through the uh, Suez Canal, he'd be in the Red Sea, which again is 
then and now is a very good time to have your boat room taken away from you by other people. But then he would have had to go through the Malacca Straits in Singapore, also a big problem, and pass through the Philippines. And the Philippines at this point, the Bujanese, um, the, the people from Bugi, which was one of the islands in that region, they were so feared that tales of the boogeyman that made its way back to the cribs and to the, the fairy tales and tall stories of children being, uh, you know, given a bedtime story in the in in Europe. The the boogeyman's going to get you is actually a, a corruption of the Bujanese and the Bujanese pirates that were so uh, apt to um, r- remove you from this mortal coil if they got half a chance. So he would be very very aware of that. He may also have been aware of the fact that if he was truly going to sail around the world, he would have to do a a mileage which was at least equal to the circumnavigation uh, at the equator. Now, when we do circumnavigations, you have to be in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere for a certain amount of time. You have to cross all the um, parallels of longitude as you go around the world. You have to uh, cross your outbound track. And you need to have uh, done a minimum distance of, I think now it's 21,800 miles. He may have been a little bit aware of the fact that if he set off through the Suez Canal and then went through mid-latitude circumnavigation, it might not be um, quite as easy to say he'd sailed around the world. I think people would say, well, that's not really sailing around the world, is it? Um, he was also thinking about going east, which would have been with the prevailing winds and and uh, with the prevailing currents. When he sets off from Gibraltar, suddenly everything has changed. He's setting off uh, to recross the Atlantic, to go back down towards uh, South America, and to then go round Cape Horn uh, west. Now, that is no small thing. And as those who've been following me outside the po- podcast will know, my own aspiration uh, for the winter of 2021 is to go and do the west about circumnavigation of the world. To put it in perspective, there are only six people who have ever sailed solo nonstop west around the world, where those who have sailed solo uh, nonstop east around the world will now be, I'm sure, well over 200. When I did it, I was the 182nd person to sail solo uh, around the world. So the the numbers of people going um, to uh, the West as they go around the world is in the same kind of numbers of people that have set foot on the moon. So at the time when uh, Slocum was setting off, of course, going West, he would know exactly what he was getting into. There was no shipping that was like deliberately sailing West around the world. Everybody went the Clipper route, which was down beneath Cape of Good Hope, beneath Cape Horn, and then back up to Europe. So trepidation, I think there was massive trepidation. I think that what he did with this story of uh, the Feluca and being chased is I think that he underlined, hey, pirates are a problem. This is why I'm going this way. I think he was, I think what we need to do as we listen to this is we need to recognize that he was a master storyteller as well as a master mariner. And I am a big fan of that. Whereas I did um, my trips around the world, I wrote over 200,000 words in blogs, which ended up um, in newspapers in the UK. Um, I won awards for them. It became a very important thing for me. Financial income. We had no money when I did the things I did and, and getting money from doing these things was very, very important, which is exactly the same for Slocum, but also a very deep desire to bring people with me, to vicariously bring people on the journey with me and to set that seed of, um, of independence and uh, uh, of, of, of 
questioning limitations uh, into people's minds so that uh, others might seek out their own uh, adventures and their own successes. So I think we share those things, but it means um, that as a great lover of a great story, I recognize in this that um, Slocum is choosing what it is that he shares with us. He shares with us his mistakes. He shares with us his um observations, little sweet moments, like when he uh, says a good evening to the moon, when the moon comes up, the the apparition of the, the pilot of the Pinter that comes on board. Every time he tells us one of these things, it's, it's not just what was in his log, it's what he's choosing to share. And when he chooses to share the story of the pirates chasing him, I think he's underlining quite how fast the spray is and how, how um, happy he is with her um, her abilities as a sailing vessel, but I think he's he's underlining why he decided to go the way he did. After all the other plans, he suddenly decides to set off west around the world in his boat. So the boat which starts to chase him is a felucca. So a felucca is a, a slim open boat with quite a, a short mast with a giant yard, a giant wooden beam, a yard that goes up in the air with a sail hanging from it. Um, the, the beam is at an angle when it's hoisted, so the sail is shorter at the front than it is at the back. And uh, as you flick the sail from one side to the other, the um, the sheet is released and uh, the, the sail flicks across. Sometimes you dip the end of the yard, uh, you make it go almost vertical and flip it onto the other side. Some of them, it just you push the sail up against the mast. But however, this particular one was rigged. Um, they can be very, very quick. And these kind of boats, when we did the interview with uh, Ryan Barkey in Podcast 22, we heard him racing down the coast of Zanzibar on a boat which had a very similar rig to this, this Feluca here. Very traditional form of boat, very quick. They're also raced in uh, Martinique. Um, it would be capable of catching a spray. If you make it long and thin, and then it's got no other weight in it apart from the crew, even with this style of sail, which is perhaps not as aerodynamically um, developed as the sails on the spray, just the lightness of the boat itself would allow it to catch up with Slocum. But Slocum shares with us exactly how he got away. It's not just through the fleetness of the spray, but also through the fact that the, um, the Feluca breaks its mast. A, a great wave or a great storm or a great um, a wind. I'm not quite sure exactly which one it is in the story that lets go the mast. He talks about a giant wave overtaking them, but um, a, a wave wouldn't really like lose your mast. A great blow of wind would be what it does. It it, it would it snapped the, the strop on the main sheet of the spray. The boom went flying out, smashed into the leeward rigging and, uh, and parted the boom, smashed the boom um, close to the gooseneck. Um, he drops the sail, but he's got enough in his headsails to to outrun them they unfortunately well i guess fortunately lose their mast and the and the chase is over um having been chased by pirates a few times myself uh i i know exactly what's going through um slocum's head in this situation uh it is a very interesting thing to look back and say oh someone's following me and then to look again and go oh they're not following me they're chasing me and then to realize hey wow <laughs> i have to escape not race not not to get to the finish line first, but I need to escape away from this person. Otherwise, I could be physically harmed um, and lose everything I have. That's a very um, visceral situation to be caught in, very powerful moment. And uh, I've been chased a number of times in in Asia, pretty much always around Cambodia, Laos, um, and always it's... Uh, 
Oh no, one one time it was in the daytime. That's right. In the daytime, I remember they actually shot at a small arms fire, maybe two twos like pinging off the water close by the vessel and us all huddling inside and then just turning and putting as much distance between us and, and them as possible. Um, the other times a lot longer, like an hour and a two hours being chased. Um, each time I was on a sailing vessel and each time it was a motor driven um, like fishing boat of some description that was after us, um, it was about mm, the fifth time of doing that that I realized uh, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, one of them being you turn off all your lights. It's much harder to see a boat. Uh, if you have things like active echo, which is an electronic method of um, improving your radar cross uh, section, then you can turn them off. And if you really, really want to kind of go uh, uh, and be sleek and, and undetectable on a sailing boat and you really do fear for your life and it's nighttime, you can actually cover up your radar reflectors with tinfoil. So <laughs> so you, you get to learn all these little tricks, um, but you, some parts of the world you need to be a little bit more savvy like that. They don't, they don't teach that stuff in the RYA, right? Um, the other thing, which if we're talking about tips for sailors, as I guess all of you have got some interest in the sea, um, while Slocum, Slocum breaks the strop on his boom, so there's not really anywhere there. He, he breaks the strop, which holds the block to the to the boat or to the actual boom itself. Always double up strops. Um, you can always make a safety strop on top of shackles. You can always put a loop which goes up and over the block, and then if the block itself parts, the rope will be captured by the strop, although it won't be able to run properly, but at least it'll capture it. And finally, never allow your main sheet to be so long that your boom can hit the leeward rigging. Your boom should stop at least a foot short of the leeward rigging. There will never be a time when you need to push the boom up against the rigging, but if it does end up there in an uncontrolled jibe, it will snap the boom off. So um, the chase by the pirates, very, very exciting. It certainly sets the scene for what's happening and it underlines for us why Slocum has decided to go the way he has and um, off onto his circumnavigation he goes. Now, in terms of terminology, um, as he's getting the boom back organized after he's broken it, he says he fished the boom. Uh, as we go through this, I'd love to help you with any vocabulary, which is a little bit specific to Slocum's world. Um, when he fishes the boom, he's talking about he lifted it up out of the water. Technically, when you were lifting an anchor at this time, you get the anchor to a point where it was um, up out of the water. That's caught where you are fishing the the anchor you fish it up so that it's up quite high uh, out the water and then you would bring it up into its um, uh, storage position um, at the cat heads and you'd be catting it you fish and cat the anchor so you fish it up out the water you lifting it up clear of the water i think these days if we're using the phrase to fish something we're normally talking about actually leading a line um, down a narrow conduit or, or, or rope run or something like that electricians will have a fish which they put Push through to get wires through, but in this thing, it means he lifted it up out of the water. The next part, he starts to head down towards Fuerteventura and he has a big storm off Fuerteventura. Again, this is something which really rings true for me. Fuerteventura, <laughs> the, the clues in the name of the island, like Fuerteventura literally means strong wind. <laughs> okay, so what happens in Fuerteventura is you have these long rolling um, hillsides. You've got a very high peak. Um, the Canaries are all volcanic. So you've got this very, very tall peak and then these long rolling hillsides sides that come down on the on the uh 
southern and southeastern and southwestern edge of the island. And the wind rises up, the, the air is pushed up by the prevailing weather system. It gets to the higher altitudes on this mountain side. It cools and becomes more dense. And then it starts to run down the hillsides in what's called a catabatic wind. So catabatic winds are cooling winds that run down hillsides and can create these enormously strong weather systems on the leeward side of the islands. The, uh, the other side of that, obviously that rising wind as it goes up would be an anabatic wind. So um, Fuerteventura is something which as soon as I hear the name, <laughs> I have had my own experiences there. Um, if you listen to the early podcast, uh, I went through Fuerteventura uh, in my solo around the world voyage and ended up um, basically nearly dismasting myself. I had a giant code zero, which broke its tack on the uh, foredeck of my open 60. I ended up with this enormous Kevlar sail uh, ranging around from the top of a hundred foot rig, completely out of control. Uh, the wind was blowing 35 knots and, and, a, and a dramatic recovery ensued. Uh, so I'm more than aware of exactly how windy it can get there. I think the good thing here is that what it does is it underlines, uh, I talked about the fact that Slocum is a master storyteller. Well, he is, but he does it amongst this strong framework of, um, of, of, of true and real circumstances that occur on the high seas. And I, I wonder what the criticism was, and the, or not the criticism, but the, I wonder what the critics said. I guess that's what I'm saying. I wonder what the critics said in the 1900s when the book came out um, and what they thought of it. Because obviously Master Mariners reading this, um, they would be a very critical bunch. And uh, they would appreciate, of course, the, the, um, the facts of the thing. And I, I think Slocum, provides both for the reader who's there for entertainment, who may not be a sailor, and also for those who are very, very aware of what happens on the high seas. The other thing that we should bear in mind as he heads down and, and passes close within Fuerteventura is the accuracy of his navigation. Again, he is using sun sights, he's using some star sights and lunar charts, um, but most of what he's doing is all being done just on a little, uh, little clock, basically. And that's uh, something he... I think he kind of recognizes that his his navigation is is antiquated for the times, um, but he's very proud of the fact that his uh, simple navigational style is able to give him the phenomenal results it is. I'm not sure if he was particularly attempting to find Fuerteventura. If you're heading down through that part of the world, as long as your longitude is within probably 10 degrees, uh, you're going to find one of the Canary Islands or you're going to be able to see them because they're so high and the clouds above the Canary Islands are so prolific that you can normally like work out where you are roughly um, as long as you're uh, within you know, 20, 30 miles of them. Um, but there he is. He's sailed past it quite nicely and without a problem. He's just 10, 12 miles off it. And uh, yeah, again, think of how it would be going through his mind. Like he's going to sail this wooden boat that he put together around the world on his own at 50 plus. Um, it's never been done before. And he's got a tin clock and some charts and a compass and a log to find his way. Like um, this guy's got balls of steel. That's no two ways about it. Okay. Uh, now he comes upon a particular wind system here. Uh, a harmatan or harmatan, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, that's a really dry, dusty wind that blows out off the Sahara uh, between like December and March, somewhere around there. 
um, very similar to the Scirocco that blows up uh, from the Sahara out across the uh, <laughs> out across the Mediterranean, and is the great love of everybody who drives a super yacht, um, which tend to be white. And then, of course, um, this orange dust. I remember being in Valencia. It was Valencia. Yeah, it was the uh, America's Cup in two thousand and eight. We were there with a 110-footer called Camflor Lady. And uh, if it wasn't the diesel uh, residue from the container port and the ships and the traffic downtown, then it was the Scirocco blowing up. One would stay in the boat black and the other one would stay in the boat red. So these dusty winds that blow out from Africa, very well known to sailors. And uh, the Harmatan or Harmatan, depending on how you go for it, um, is what he drives into. So... Um, he then sets off out into the Atlantic proper and starts to give us an idea of what it is to be at sea in that region. Um, he comes, he's always very, very keen to tell us about all the different ships that he comes across. And this is because in a, a logbook, a professional logbook, when you're at sea, there are specific things that have to be put into a logbook when you're a sea captain. So he's obviously been doing that. And obviously when he writes the book, he's looking at the logs. So what ships he came across um, is something which always comes up. But it was very, very important then uh, for people. And as he says, you know, what's the point in, in, in being out on the water if there's not people to talk to? He has a very different attitude towards it than, uh, than we do today. Um, he mentions in the book the fact that days were when you would uh, stop and back your topsails and actually have a, have a chat, have a, have, a, have a gam, as he says with people. Uh, a gam is something which I had not really heard of until I came to Canada. It just means to stop and have a chat. There's actually a sailing magazine here called Gam. And um, it's uh, to stop and have a gam with someone means to have a chat with them. And he says that back in the day, people would stop and, and, and natter from, from probably with a big bullhorn to chat with each other. Um, but he comes across a, a bullock droga. So a droga would be a ship which carried uh, cargo. Um, I, I tried to find this word online. I know it as being a carrier, like a steer droga or a, a timber droga or whatever. I've come across that. I think it's very particular to some areas of the world. The only thing I can find online is a note from uh, the book, A Man for All Oceans by Stan Grayson. And in that, in one of the notes in that, he says, uh, and this is to quote, uh, in the Century Magazine version of Sailing Alone Around the World, Slocum wrote of seeing a bullet carrier during his voyage from Gibraltar to Brazil. The magazine's editors footnoted carrier and referenced it as a droga. When the articles were prepared for publication in a book form, the vessel appeared as a bullock droga. So it may have been something that kind of got convoluted down through um, through the editorial process. But um, yeah, sure, whatever. It, it, it still kind of makes sense. It's, uh, it's a, a kind of vessel that you come on at sea. And it's kind of funny that he talks about um, there being a wild steer at the helm again, showing that he's got a bit of a uh, bit of a sense of humour with his pun on uh, steer. But um, the uh, the next one that he meets is one that's um, very stale, as he says. If you um, come across these cattle carrying ships at sea, and it's still very very true today, if you end up in the leeward position downwind from them, the smell coming off them is, uh, who. Uh, yeah, remember at sea, nothing really smells as much. Your dinner smells. Um, when the engine gets too hot, that smells. Uh, flying fish smell. 
you don't smell your crewmates after a while. And if you're on your own, you definitely don't smell it. Um, there's, there aren't many, very many smells at sea. You don't like smell seaweed or anything. There's people say, oh, the smell of the sea air. Like there is no smell of sea air. The sea doesn't smell of anything. But when one of those ships goes past, holy mackerel. Well, that's, that smells, that smells of something. So I understood his uh, comment later on about how, um, how stale and, and, uh, awful the smell of the droga was that went past. Um, he talks about um, flying fish and uh, he mentions the fact that one goes down like the forward scupper and ends up like right next to the frying pan. Really reminds me of a, uh, a comment in uh, Contiki Adventure by Thor Herendal where indeed a flying fish goes in through the door of the shack and ends up like basically almost in the frying pan. It seems to be a very common thread. Like we're all trying to see, will a flying fish eventually just jump itself directly into the stove? I've never eaten one. I understand that they're very like um, sardines or herring. They're very oily fish. I think that uh, the more I read of this stuff, the more I'm thinking like, you know what? Next time I go to sea, I might try that. When I've been to sea in a solo uh, situation, it's always just with a, a kettle and no other pans or pots on board. Literally, you've got a kettle, you boil water, you make tea, coffee, and you rehydrate uh, the dehydrated food. Um, it, it suddenly occurs to me that, you know what? It might be kind of fun. I'm not much of a fisherman and I'd have to find out exactly how you do it but it would be nice to get something like that and enjoy them I'm 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 too much of an animal lover when I hear them flapping around on deck I immediately go up and throw them into the water um, that's also from the fact that flying fish are incredibly slippery and as they thrash around on the deck they lose that kind of slippery gungy stuff that's already all over them and uh, they can put it all over the deck and if you're not careful it can be extraordinarily slippery so you have to get them off the deck as quickly as you possibly can. And again, uh, tips for sailors, if you're listening, the best way of getting the smell off your hands from flying fish after you chuck them over the side is to get hold of a rope, like a halyard or something, and just run your hands down the halyard and that will remove all of that slimy, nasty stuff off onto the halyard and then you don't take it inside with you. I literally, you can do that and you don't even have to wash your hands. So um, yeah, a little, uh, see, it's all tips this week, isn't it? There's. Uh, uh, lots of things in here. <laughs> um, the next thing is that he uh, he gets himself down towards the doldrums. And uh, the doldrums, I hear that phrase being used a lot to describe um, very, very like, uh, calm areas. I know here people say to me, oh, I was out sailing the other day and we got into the doldrums and there was no wind. And the doldrums is a very particular area of the world. And it's uh, on either side of the ITCZ, the intertropical convergence zone, which is around the equator. So the doldrums are characterized by uh, almost no wind and then very, very strong little squalls and then no wind and then very, very strong little squalls. And um, it's up and down, up and down that's the kind of nature of the doldrums but they are in a physical geography as well they're in a physical place and that's about 10 north to 10 south so um as he starts to enter the doldrums his uh his description is absolutely correct and in that he does say there's one bit where he's uh he's done like almost no mileage at all he talks about the fact that the uh, spray struggled and tossed for 10 days and in that entire time only made 300 miles, which, um, yeah, I know how that goes. It's uh, It can be a very, very frustrating and very difficult part of the world to sail through. Um, I, I've done it uh, a number of times and now I've got a little bit of a kind of thing worked out where I'm a lot more aware of the radar at this point, radar, modern radar um, that we'd have on a yacht. 
uh, is able to see weather, it's able to see uh, rain. And um, although you may not get rain on the ground with you, it's quite like there's a lot of water up in the clouds um, as these squalls start to come in. You can often see the squalls coming at night on the radar um, and can't see them uh, in, in, the, in the ocean around you. The squalls are something you really have to be careful with because the wind is so light primarily, you've got a lot of sail area up. And then as soon as one of these squalls hit, you can be absolutely bowled over by them. As a solo sailor, it means a lot of work. Your sails up till you're almost at your like largest sail configuration. And then you see something coming on the radar or you, it covers over the, the moon, covers over the stars, and you, you feel that kind of hot breath of wind coming. And then boom, everything has to be furled and snuffed and gotten rid of. And then as soon as it's gone, pff, it all has to go back up again. So on an open 60, that would mean probably dropping to second reef on the mainsail, which is like halving the size of the mainsail and dropping from spinnaker that may well have been up to down to, I don't know, your number two or even a staysail or something, go through the school and then pop out on the other side. The thing that I've made mistakes with, with the doldrums, particularly when you're going around the world. And so obviously your, your basic course is whether you're going to Cape Horn or whether you're going to the Cape of Good Hope, your course is exactly the same as you come down through the equatorial region. You're going to be crossing through the uh, equator. I think um, Slocum goes through the equator around uh, 26 degrees uh, west. I would normally go through on the things I've done a bit further to the west, like 38, something like that. Um, but he uh, he and I at that point going down from the northern um Northern Atlantic, whether you're going to take a big turn to the left and go to the Cape of Good Hope or take the turn to the right and go to the Cape Horn, you just want to go south. And that's the thing that can create the biggest problems. You go through the doldrums, these squalls hit. And if you aren't ready to shorten sail and you aren't ready to, to make this a huge amount of effort happen, um, you can start trying to run off before the squalls, which then means you're zigzagging all over the ocean. And obviously, as you go through from this 10 degrees north to 10 degrees south, you just want to get through that region as fast as possible. And the nearest exit is south. If you're going from the North Atlantic to the South Atlantic, when you're in the doldrums, your only course is south. And so you would must adjust and reef and, and choose sails and sail configurations based on the desire to just go dead south. There's no like, oh, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over there. Unless there's a very particular meteorological um, characteristic that you're trying to head towards, uh, you just go south. And so with that means that you may be going downwind with a spinnaker up and then next minute you're in a school going dead upwind in two reefs and a staysail. So a huge amount of effort. And um, he reports only 300 miles in 10 days. Yeah, I, I, I hear you, buddy. <laughs> I hear you. That's, you know, that's like one and a quarter miles an hour. Like that's tough going. That's tough going, whoever you are. Um, and I, again, a, a fantastic insight into the honesty of the guy in the story that he's uh, telling and these wonderful details that populate it and color it and make it the, uh, the, the fantastic book that it is. The other thing to bear in mind here is that when he's talking about the four masted ship that he, um, he sees, uh, he says that he's seen that from the masthead. Now, I don't know if he was necessarily be at the masthead. He's probably more at the throat of the mainsail, which you know, have got that angled yard at the top of a gaff rig sail. Um, the more common place to go and stand and feel 
happy about standing would be the spreaders or the throat of the mane or something like that to go right up to the button, right up to the top of the mast would be a funny thing. Because bear in mind, he's not got a harness on. He's got no kind of vertical ascending or descending uh, safety mechanism. He's probably just swigging himself up there. And that's why when the reporter goes on board the boat and describes him as being as nimble as a monkey, um, it's because going up and down the mast in that way, going up and down the rigging, that's something that would be commonplace for Slocum, but very much out of the norm for 50, 51 year olds in other you know parts of the world, unless you're a circus performer. So um, the rigging, like the rigging on my open 60 now would be about 13 or 14 mil, about half a half an inch in diameter. So climbing that is is hard. I can climb to the first spreader on my boat, which would put me about, I don't know, like 20 foot above the deck, something like that, and stand on the spreaders there. I can do that very, very reliably with just a harness and a, and a, a, a line hanging off the harness and then basically just put a... Um, a rolling hitch onto the stay when I get up there or hold it or, or loop myself around the spreader. Um, I feel comfortable doing it that, uh, at the dock or at a mooring or something, but I'm not doing that when I go to sea. I, I probably wouldn't go above the radar, which is about 11 foot off the deck without some kind of harness on at sea. And that already is taking a risk. There's no way that Slocum is doing anything other than climbing up there directly. He may have some kind of canvas belt with a short strop and a, and a basic old school uh, iron carabiner of some description, you know, the kind of hook type thing that he's hooking himself on with. It's possible, but more than likely he's just climbing up it, which means he's 30 foot off the deck, up this rig on his own, probably just with his leather shoes and his waistcoat on. And um, yeah, another indicator of uh, how adapted to this environment um, Slocum truly is. He is a, a, a master mariner in the sense of that he has mastered being on the sea. Um, as he goes uh, a little bit further along, he says that he gets into this situation where he has these dolphins following him. And just to clarify, uh, although now we think of dolphins as the, as the mammal, um, which is you know a wonderful thing to have around your boat at any time, dolphin is also a word which more traditionally referred to mahi-mahi. Um, it's that long, thin fish with a very kind of high forehead. It goes all sorts of different crazy colors um, as it's in the water and changes color again when it's on the deck if you've caught one. Um, he, he, he shows that he's got this kind of like, uh, uh, this light heart about him, you know? He's a seafarer who's been at sea for decades, for hundreds of thousands of miles, and he's still got time to look at the details, the little fish in the water, and he's feeding them things, and he kind of misses them when they go, and you know, he's protecting them from sharks by towing a pan behind him and then shooting the sharks. And there's a lot going on here. And I, I love the fact that he is unafraid in his book to share that because the people who um, were merchant seafarers at the time, if you think about, you know, what they're like, the phrase uh, grin and bear it, growl and go would be something you get from like Joseph Conrad or something like that, where they are very grizzled and very kind of like jaded men of the sea. And suddenly we have this quite childlike appreciation for a very simple animal that's chasing along behind the boat. And we see that um, Slocum has got a lot of depth to him. He's, uh, he's certainly... Um, reading the book in the way that I am and going and checking out the details, I, I'm starting to understand this person in a, in a completely different way than I did before. And uh, yeah, I love reading these little details of um, even just like a, a fish. I now know that 125 years ago, there was a slightly injured uh, Mahi Mahi following a boat in the Atlantic. And without uh, Slocum's uh, lovely eye for detail, of course, that would be completely lost.
Okay, and then the last of these uh, unusual terms he uses, the cavalli fish that he's talking about, um, that's a cavalli jack. It's a, a large fish, it's in the jack family, and it's a, a powerful predatory fish that uh, lives on smaller fish and prawns and all that kind of stuff, kind of in the same general pelagic kind of group as the mahi-mahi, um, big, um, big fish. And and you see them all down the west coast of Africa. You see them all down the east coast of um, South America and, and places in between. But um, exactly the kind of fish that you're likely to find at sea. Big, fat thing, yellow fins or black fins on it. Looks a bit like a mini tuna, something like that. And they can get up to about like half a meter long, which is like, I don't know, what's that, 20, 20, 20 inches, something like that, a bit less. Um, yeah, they're... Uh, they're quite common at sea and they're highly prized game fish. They're very, very tasty and, and, and a powerful, challenging fish to, to bring onto the boat. So once he's finished his crossing of the Atlantic, which is you know no small thing, he then makes his way into Pernambuco Bay in, uh, in, in, in Brazil. And he's obviously got history there before. He's um, been the captain of the um, destroyer before. And uh, again, looking at the wonderful book, um, Joshua Slocum, The Captain Who Sailed Around the World by uh, Quentin Casey, um, there's actually uh, an image in there of uh, the destroyer at Pernambuco Harbor in 1893. And uh, to describe it um, to you, it's it's what you think of like um, Confederate like ironclad. Uh, it's, it's very, very low hull in the water. And then these angled sides on it, um, which all made of steel. And then just this big, funnel pipe uh, sticking out the top of the thing. So so uh, a, a battleship of its time and um, a very uh, imposing and interesting uh, piece of equipment it is too. Um, he's obviously owed wages from them. This is all very kind of modern, normal stuff. And uh, he uh, tries to go and get his wages and they're like, yeah, no, sure, sure. You just take the boat instead if you want. <laughs> the boat's like sunk. So it shows these kind of tricks, these kind of um, situations. There's nothing new under the sun. There's certainly nothing new in sailing. Make sure you've got your wages when you leave the boat. But um, it shows what a uh, interesting history uh, Slocum has had. And, um, you know, he's, he was the captain of the Northern Lights. He was the captain of the Quidneck. He was the captain of this um, destroyer that is called the destroyer, but it is a destroyer by our modern kind of reckoning. Um, he's had a very uh, interesting, varied life. He's, he's been out there in, uh, in all sorts of situations and... Um, yeah, <laughs> he's probably more than aware of the fact that he's not going to get his money back, particularly if the thing was uh, sunk. Although by looking at the uh, image of it, I do realize it's not like it's some giant ship with just the funnel sticking out of the water. It's probably not much bigger than like 80 or 90 foot long. And it's probably not more than eight feet of it out the water before it gets to the funnel pipe. So uh, maybe he should have uh, tried to raise it, but it um, seems like he uh, didn't get paid. So Okay, so as we come into the end of uh, chapter five, he gets the opportunity to take his uh, friend, uh, Captain Howard, out and show him just how well the spray is able to sail without anybody at the wheel. And I think this is an important um, moment in the book uh, with Slocum choosing to tell us this story so that we as the reader in 1905 recognize that there's no trickery at play because I'm sure a lot of people at the time wondered how Slocum was able to do this thing to set off around the world on his own on a boat uh, and sail such large distances without crew. 
the most jaded view of this from any sea captain at the time would have been, well, he just had people on board with him and he put them ashore before he arrived in port and then picked them up again when he set off. So I think there's an element in this of him saying, hey, no, look, I had somebody on board who's really experienced and he came with me and saw how well the spray could sail on her own and, you know, to the point that the guy was like, he'd heard the stories of the pilot of the Pinter and was like, uh, yeah, I'm not staying on this boat. Like, I want to get off. But um, I think there's a lovely little glimpse into Slocum's life and his interaction with other people. But I think we shouldn't be unaware of the fact there's a literary uh, mechanism at play here where he is stamping some veracity on his claims that he was able to do this on his own because the spray itself could sail itself. And, you know, I've had boats, well, I've sailed a lot of miles with boats doing the same thing. And I've actually sailed our, um, our Volvo 60 Challenger. I've sailed her now 6,000 miles solo with no autopilot, which people like, I know that people can be jaded and, uh, and, and quizzical when you tell them that because I've had it happen to me. Um, they're like, well, that's not possible. It's like, well, it is possible, but you take compromises on the performance of the boat, the upwind ability of the boat, how much sail area you can carry downwind, all sorts of things. You do need to tend it. It's very kind of labor intensive. You don't need to be stood at the wheel, but she will balance herself up if you're smart with your sails and your jib leads and your mainsail and all that kind of stuff. Basically, from my experience of doing it, although it's a very different boat to the spray, uh, you just have to reduce the mainsail. If you can reduce the mainsail, the headsails will pr pretty much pull the boat in whatever direction you set the tiller on. There's a way of balancing up the forces on the jib, the forces on the main, and getting everything so that she'll come up a little bit and then depower, and then the rudder takes her back down. She starts to go a little bit lower. The power starts to come into the leech of the main, and that forces the boat back upwind. And you kind of oscillating up and down and over a bit of time you can get that really kind of delicately um, worked out so that the boat will steer itself it does also lead to extra learning about sailing of just how little input you need to make on a wheel for the boat to be fast i think it can be there can be situations where you're steering like you're steering a volvo boat doing 25 knots and you're you know like it's like being in a rally car and in fact when we've driven um challenger at high speeds and my open sixter at high speeds and i've had people at the wheel and i've been tutoring them how to drive the boat it is like driving a rally car it's a lot of wheel the boat is not really fussed about the amount of friction from the rudder because um, there's so much power available what she's worried about is the angle of the sails relative to the wind so you can put a lot of rudder on and the boat will still keep uh, sailing along at very, very high speed. If you are willing to take some compromises and settle the, he the helm down and just secure the helm and then balance the sails, she'll range up and range down on her course, um, but, uh, but will follow a course quite nicely for you. So um, Slocum, I think at this uh, point in the book, before you know there are any other questions asked of him, is just keen to say, hey, this boat sails itself. That's why I can do this thing. Otherwise, people just think, of course, that he's uh, he's lying about what he did. Okay, that brings us to chapter six. And chapter six, I just love this part of the book. When I was reading first from this book in one of the previous podcasts where I was um, talking about my heroes, my sailing heroes, I read this part of the book. This is the bit where he goes up on the uh, up on the beach. And I think the first thing is that you know, again, he's being very honest. We, we've learned now that he's uh, a master in storing, telling a story, um, but there's a lot of honesty in this. I think when you drive small boats, when you, you know, the 20, 30, 40 foot range, going aground has got this like enormous, like 
seriousness to it and this terrible, oh my God, and then Bob went aground like it's the worst thing that ever happened. It's going to happen. Like, <laughs> you know, you get on and off boats close to the shore. So when you bring the boat close to the shore, you're probably going to go aground. Your first big question is how hard did you hit and what did you hit? Because if you hit mud and you're doing three knots, who cares? If you hit a rock doing 15 knots, well, it's a completely different situation. But going aground is not some like giant uh, error in your skill set. It doesn't matter. As long as the boat's not damaged, as long as no people are damaged, what does it matter? Really, like just get over it. And that is uh, an element of it. We're seeing a little bit of um, Slocan's professionalism coming out here because he just tells the story of it. You know, he very, very relaxedly says, uh, well, you know, I was just kind of following along the coast. And then, uh, well, then I realized that I was kind of um, on the coast. <laughs> and so it looks like basically that the, um, the, the sand dunes and the way that they were kind of lying with the stars behind them, whatever, suddenly he just found himself that he'd, he'd gone onto the gone onto the beach. But it's not too much of a problem because it's a soft sand beach or softish sand beach, and it doesn't seem to be creating too much of an issue for him. He tries to get the boat off quickly by kedging. So you've got your main anchor or your bow anchor, your bow anchor, which goes out the front of the boat, but you have another lighter anchor, which often will be deployed out the back of the boat. And uh, you can often kedge your way back out of trouble um, if you suddenly get yourself on the ground, but he uses a lovely phrase here, which I've not come across before. He says he, she sowed herself a foot. So like sowing a furrow of seeds in the ground, she sowed herself a foot and that was it. She wasn't moving off there. So he then sets to with this incredible situation, which he writes about so beautifully. He's got this tiny little dory. So dories, as we've said before, are these sort of slab-sided, flat-bottomed boats that were used by Grand Banks fishermen from Newfoundland, from Nova Scotia, from Maine. Um, they could be nested one inside another uh, on the schooners that were the motherships for this kind of fishing. Um, and he's got like a half dory. <laughs> so where a dory would have like double ends and quite nicely raised double ends, he's basically just sawn one in half and made this very little boat out of it, which is, you know, been fine, but it's completely overwhelmed by trying to, uh, help him with the next part of his rescue plan, which is to take his main anchor and stick it out far from the boat so he can then start to grind in on it. Um, he, he comes up with a plan, which I think is a pretty genius plan, and he just he cuts the warp in half and then ships it in two parts. So um, he's I'm not sure how much uh, chain he's got, if any. I think the way he's describing it, he doesn't... When you're trying to chuck an anchor out the back of a dinghy, and I was actually just uh, doing this relatively recently with a, a very heavy one-inch diameter chain, which is part of my mooring here in, uh, in, in, in Lunenburg, where I live, and I had it in this tiny little eight-foot Walker Bay dinghy, and, uh, and I was thinking of Slocum when I was doing it. The anchor and the chain are all at the back of the boat, right in the transom, and I'm trying to... Sorry, not... I'm my situation it was an anchor it was just chain but all the weight of it is right at the back and i'm sitting in the middle and as i start to then kick it off the back of the boat and try to try to get the anchor and the chain and all this the rest of the stuff to go into the water um the, the flipping boat is like nearly standing on its end so um he doesn't talk about chain but he's obviously got a very heavy anchor and he's got probably a very heavy inch uh, very heavy warp which he's working with maybe one inch manila warp something like that and so the weight of it plus water it starts to swamp the dinghy and he uh, very bravely and very uh, intelligently at the very last moment uh, when he realizes that the boat is completely awash and about to go down he, well not go down 
he realized at the last moment the boat's completely awash and obviously is going to roll over because it's completely unstable. He just stands up with the anchor and chucks it off the boat and then the boat uh, rolls over and that's the end of that. And what's interesting is that um, great storyteller that he is and uh, <laughs> with some wonderful Nova Scotian style kind of underplaying of things, he just says, at which point I remembered I can't swim. <laughs> so like, oh, okay, well, this is just got serious really quickly. So he then starts to tell us a story of what happens next. And in it, he describes that um, he'd already been down three times. And certainly when I was growing up, my dad was a lifeguard and he was a great swimmer. And he would always describe the fact that a drowning person goes down three times and then, th then they're gone on the fourth time. They don't come back up. So when uh, Slocum is saying three times I had been under and I was just uh, saying, now I lay me, as in now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. So he's basically like giving himself a, a little prayer and a little going to sleep prayer because he thinks he's going to die. And then he gets this kind of determination and gets himself onto the boat and goes, that's pretty impressive for someone who doesn't know how to how to swim. And it was very, very common uh, until quite recently that sailors didn't know how to swim. Um, I think the theory kind of being that it would like keep you in the boat and keep you more focused if you couldn't <laughs> if you couldn't swim. It sounds uh, awful to me, but it's uh, yeah. They they many many stories of professional sailors not being able to uh, swim, and um, I guess that keeps you very focused on it. But it's a it's a big thing. Anybody who's got a kayak and uh, knows you know you roll the kayak for whatever reason you have to get out of the kayak. You don't know how to roll yourself back up, or you can't, and then the boat's full and you uh, have to. You know, get in there with your bilge pump and pump the pump the kayak out, and then you've got to get onto the kayak and get yourself back in the kayak with this kind of like cowboy straddling the horse kind of maneuver. Um, it's very tippy, it's very difficult, and the secret, of course, um, oh, here you go. It's like it's sailors' tips all round today. If you're in a situation where you come out of a boat and you've got to get back into it, you've got to get yourself just up onto the edge of the boat as much as you can, and then using every bit of force you have, you have to get yourself directly to the center of buoyancy of the boat. If you attempt to like slowly scrabble climb yourself in, the boat will just roll on top of you. It's the same for kayaks, same for canoes, same for dinghies, for anything and everything like that. So you've really got to get yourself like on the edge and then give yourself a one, two, three, and kick your legs and use your arms and everything you've got and just propel yourself as fast as possible to the center of buoyancy of the boat. You can also aid this by going up over the stern uh, of a kind of like little pram dinghy or something like that because you've got the whole length of the boat, even if it's small, ahead of you and obviously the prow is at the end of a long lever bar from where you are and the transom is acting as the fulcrum. So you've got that extra bit of inertia that it takes for the front of the boat to be moved away from the horizontal where it's sitting and you may then just have enough time to get yourself into the middle of the boat before it rolls over again. But um, yeah, that didn't, <laughs> I think it's just a pure will to live for Slocum. Bear in mind again, you know, he's probably doing this like in a waistcoat, a cotton shirt, tweed pants, like he's not exactly uh, rigged for doing this, but he makes it happen. And then we get, of course, the, the honesty is then followed by the crowning moment of his professionalism as a seafarer and the fact that he has got the anchor to exactly where it needs to be so that he's used his entire anchor warp. And this is very, very important for any kind of kedging or any kind of anchoring at all. If you are trying to get an anchor to dig in deeper, it's not the weight of the anchor which is holding the boat in place. And we all know that as sailors, right? It's the design of the anchor and the way that the anchor digs into the ground. If you think of something like a CQR anchor or a Delta, um, it's going to be 
uh, plowing itself into the sand or if it's something like a Danforth anchor or even an old style fisherman anchor, it's going to get itself in and under the sand. And it's the sand and the, uh, the, the uh, anchors drag in the sand, which is really what holds the boat. But that all relies on a horizontal pull for something which is down beneath the water. So the only way to get a horizontal uh, pull on something which is way down below you is to be a long way away from it. Um, this is aided by the fact that when we're anchoring and we have chain, the chain is heavy, it creates a curve in the anchor line and that vertical pull of the boat is translated into a horizontal pull by the catenary, by the curve in the anchor chain. It does work a little bit on, on rope as well. It's not as suitable, which is why we always have, try to have chain attached to anchors or a full chain road. But the, um, the main thing for uh, Slocum here is he's just got to get that anchor as far away from the boat as he possibly can. So he's got that long hypotenuse angle, which is going to be that long hypotenuse between him and the, and the anchor. And then when he pulls on it, the pull on the ankle will be as low as possible. So the optimal situation would be if he uses all of the warp and he's got the minimum amount that he needs to just get it going on the capstan. That's what he's saying he's so proud of when he's um, very happy with the fact that he had um, got it out and got it dug in. And then when he gets back to the capstan, it's, um, it's, it's just a couple of wraps, just enough to get it going again. But he realizes all too quickly that of course what's going to have to happen is that he's going to have to wait for the next tide. The, he must have gone aground at the, the dropping of the tide. Um, and so he's, he's better now to just wait and see what happens. You know, there might also be, remember this is not charted. There's no like electronic chart for this. There's probably not even a, a paper chart that shows accurately. There may also be in this a little bit of professionalism. Well, he's gone aground. That's already happened. That's done. The water's receding away from the boat. Um, you could try and drag it back out, but you have no idea where you are. He could be in a gotcha, which is a little uh, curve or a sandbar hooks out and away from the coast. We have a number of them here in Mahone Bay where I live. Um, you can drive into one of those and then get yourself off and then think, all right, I'm going to angle 45 degrees away from the bank here and try and drive away. And you're still inside this horseshoe little sandbank, can't get out. So there is a way of dealing with that, which is you go aground, and if you've got a boat like the Spray, you just let it go aground. You can then scrub the bottom. Remember, he's now a month, basically, since he left um, Gibraltar. He can scrub off the bottom. He can check his uh, rudder. He can do all sorts of things to the boat, which would be absolutely normal. That's part of what we call careening, where you put a boat on the on the, on the, on the bank, on the shore, on the beach, whatever it is, and then let it dry out, see what's going on. That's how you used to scrub off old-style ships. You can turn your grounding into a careening and then have a look at the lay of the land when the tide goes down or more particularly have a look at the la the, the lay of the water and the uh, underwater features that may show themselves when it gets to low tide and then when it goes back up you've got as much information as you possibly have to plot getting off so sometimes once they've gone aground if you've got a boat that can take the ground it's better just to leave them there and then plan to go out on the next tide so however it came about he has uh, now decided to uh, to leave it for now. And uh, that's when, of course, then we meet this um, child of the campo, as he puts it, who seems to be uh, the, the <laughs> devil on horseback. He's uh, first of all, he's trying to um, get the uh, get the boat to uh, uh, come with him, pull it along with his horse. That doesn't work. So then he gets hold of the, uh, the little uh, dory. He can get that hidden away. Um, and even when um, 
uh, Slocum actually says to him, hey, you know, what's going on here? He's aware of the fact that this lad is like, you know, kind of getting his lariat ready to uh, to, to snag him and drag him and take him back off to the village if he thinks he's got an opening. But um, it all comes out to being a very nice situation where um, he gets as much help as can be offered. And uh, the, the boy that he's talking to is uh, Uruguayan. I've actually been horse riding uh, out into the, the wilds of Uruguay when I went there with my round the world race. And it is absolutely beautiful beautiful and i i think of the bit of horse riding i did and they've got these um wonderful sheepskin covered saddles and uh these uh, these people that live out in that part of the world it is a beautiful environment beautiful geography you got these wonderful animals and uh yeah i um I can quite imagine that it'd be quite a fiery, feisty young man that uh, comes down the beach um, to investigate. And obviously this prize is there, which may be his. Um, I think he did have a few ideas of uh, maybe I could just take this away from this gringo without any kind of problem. But as always seems to happen for a Slocum, he's got friends in high places because he's been very smart about spreading the word about what's happening. He um, is immediately able to send message to the port captain and to the, 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 the coast guard and get as much assistance as can be uh, given to him. In fact, they send a tug to go and uh, go and get the boat, but um, it, it's not something that he takes him up on because he's already used his skill set to get himself off the shore and get himself afloat. And uh, I think the thing that we take from this is, uh, you know, if it happens, it happens. Just be relaxed about it. I will share with you that when I was in the Navy, I was in uh, patrol vessels, and uh, there was still then standing orders that if we went aground and couldn't get the boat off, we immediately to cover over the pennant numbers with these gray pieces of fabric, which are there for that reason, and then to put people out scrubbing the bottom of the boat. I have no idea if that's um, something that kind of carries over from the old days, but I would imagine it probably does because if a Navy ship went aground, firstly, there's the fact of like, well, get it clean. Since you're here, get it clean. Secondly, there's the thing of don't let people think that we went aground, right? <laughs> we were actually meant to do this, but yeah, you cover over the pennant numbers and then get out and start scraping the bottom of the boat like you meant to be there. That may have made sense um, 150 years ago. For us on a 60-foot fiberglass um, patrol vessel just off the coast of uh, the UK, all students, all part of the reserve forces, us getting out and scrubbing the bottom. I think people would see through that camouflage pretty darn quickly. Anyway, he gets himself uh, away and gets himself down to Montevideo. And um, again, he, he knows this part of the world. He knows uh, Maldonado Bay. And uh, we get this um, wonderful opportunity to um, uh, see the world through his eyes. You know, this is a historical text. It's a, it's a seafarer's text, but um, I particularly love the description he has of some of the merchants that he comes across there. There's the guy that sells whiskey on one side of his store and coffins on the other side of the store. So he's able to deal with all of his customers' needs, whatever their state. Like, it's absolutely perfect. And then there's the guy that makes lemonade. He's just got himself parked up alongside a hydrant and he's just got some lemons. The lemons, like, last forever. He never changes them out. And then he's just two cents a cup he's just selling lemonade to people no problem at all and then there's the guy i think my favorite who is the guy that says uh this this despicable world is going to be um destroyed by a, a comet what's his actually yeah here we go he says uh this wicked world will be destroyed by a comet well that's probably true and we could discuss that in another uh, podcast but the uh this wicked world world will be destroyed by a comet the owner of this store is therefore bound to sell out at any price and avoid the catastrophe <laughs> I'm not sure if that logically even makes any sense. So he sells all his stuff. 
and avoids the catastrophe how but anyway it doesn't matter maybe he's gonna build a spaceship out of um out of wood or something but the uh yeah the, and then in the book if you um get the opportunity there's a wonderful depiction of it which again i like to think that um slocum would have you know i'm starting to realize like quite how intelligent slocum was with all this stuff and with writing his book i i really hope that these um images that we get to see are like close to what he actually saw actually how it was you know I, but either way there's a wonderful uh, image here of um the side of this building with this um beautiful comet and a big tail coming out the bottom of it. it looks like Halley's Comet or Hail Bob or something and then this wonderful arcing script with this uh with this uh <laughs> this message I like end of the world type message so yeah I think um as I start to delve deeper into this book and uh I've got another book here which is written by Victor Slocum which was uh, Joshua Slocum's son he has a lot more information about Joshua Slocum's life previous to um being on this voyage but then his description of the voyage is pretty much just paraphrasing the book so there's not that much to be taken from it to share with you in these um these uh, commentaries i think what i'll start to do though is well, maybe we can look at other aspects of slocum's life it's been uh, a couple of people got in contact with me and said i should read um slocum's uh, chronicle of the return of the Libertad from south america to north america which is meant to be a fantastic read as well um so that would be new for me i've never read that but um the the book at the moment which i'm really enjoying yes this one by quentin casey uh quentin casey and that's called Joshua Slocum, the captain who sailed around the world. It's available on Amazon, uh, and it's a Nimbus Publishing. And again, all of the um, all of the uh, royalties coming from that book going to the Alzheimer's Society of Nova Scotia. So good on you, Quentin Casey, for uh, for for doing all the research and and then putting it to such a good cause. So. Um, that's the end of the commentary this time. Um, I'm going to be uh, bringing you something quite special on the next one. I wanted to do it on this one, but I'm here in Nova Scotia, as you know. And uh, yesterday, uh, as I was starting to record uh, the book, as I was starting to record the bit I've just uh, read to you, um, the snow was coming down so hard that the windows were covered in it. It dropped about uh, 25 centimeters in six hours and it uh, just made the roads completely impassable. That's the reality of this part of the world. Um, but I am gonna get myself over to Mount Hanley, which is where Slocum was born. It's, uh, it's gonna be in the deep midwinter. As I speak to you now, we're just towards the end of December. Um, it's probably going to be just after Christmas, I'll go and do this, a little Christmas present to myself. Remember, I'm not just reading this to you because um, <laughs> because I'm trying to make money out of it, because if I was, um, it'd be a massive failure because you don't make money doing this kind of thing. I'm sharing my passion and my love for this with you. And I am excited to go over to Mount Hanley and, and kind of get to the bottom of all this stuff. And it occurs to me that uh, Quentin Casey, who's the author of this book, may well live here in Nova Scotia. And I'm wondering if we could uh, get him on to one of these commentaries and we could talk about part of the book so some exciting things coming there but um that's uh the end of it now we go uh, next into chapter seven which is uh when he leaves buenos aires and then heads off down towards um well he heads off down towards cape horn he's got to go all the way down the coast of uh, south america we've already got to uruguay but he's got to head down i just wonder what that would feel like for slocum he knows as well as anybody in that time going west around the horn is a big ask. He's on his own. Uh, he's in this little boat and um, what a challenge. What a guy. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound and I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.